Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with Erica Fox Brindley about her book, Music, Cosmology, and the Politics of Harmony in Early China. That came out with SUNY Press in 2012. Now, this is a book that's at the same time really interesting and also really surprising. What's so interesting about this is the nature of the argument that Eric is making about the importance of music and um, music here incorporating sound also more generally as a category, the importance of music in understanding relationships and in understanding the changing notion of relationships between the individual, the state, and the cosmos in many ways and on many levels in early China. It's surprising, at least it was surprising for me, in the way that Erica really wonderfully integrates this very focused topic in a way that brings in discourses and arguments that speak to many, many, many different fields. And so historians of medicine, historians of the body, historians of empire, of technology, of many, many different kinds of phenomena will find much of interest in the seeds here of uh, many, many different kinds of studies that can come out of this particular book. It's really wonderfully and very clearly argued and structured, and it was really fascinating to talk with Erica about it, not just um, about the arguments of the book itself, but also the process through which the book emerged and the genesis of the project and of her thinking about um, these kinds of issues that we see in the book. So it was great fun, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Erica Fox Brindley about her book, Music, Cosmology, and, and the Politics of Harmony in Early China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Erica, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Carla. And I just want to say, um, send out a special thanks to you because um, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time now, and I, I feel that um, it's just a really special treat to have somebody be able to um, uh, give us the opportunity to talk about the work that we've, you know, put into these these books. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, and it's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you about your book today because um, this is very much, and we'll get to the details, but it's one of the most clearly articulated, clearly argued, and really carefully built and carefully structured books of, of many, many that I've read um, in the past couple of years. And so it's it's really a treat for a reader to go through, and you really make the arguments very, very clear. And so I'm really looking forward to talking with you about them. Oh, thank you. But before we get to the arguments, let's talk a little bit about what brought you to the field. Can you start us off by saying you know, just a little bit about how you came to the study of early China? Um, sure, I could go on for, for, for days on that topic. Um, but uh, essentially, it was, it was kind of a, a combination of, of things. I was always interested in, in philosophy. And I kind of knew from an early age that I wanted, to, I wanted to study philosophy. So I chose Princeton University just thinking, oh, well, they have, they have a very good ranking in philosophy uh, to go there as an undergrad. And, um, and, you know, I sat in on a couple philosophy courses in my first couple of years there and quickly realized that um, I had made a big mistake it, first in choosing Princeton because it was it was not the philosophy department that I wanted. It was all analytic philosophy. And I at that point in time, I didn't realize that, you know, what I was interested in were were big ideas and, you know, aspects of, you know, our humanity, our, our relationship to the larger world. Um, you know, the cosmos, et cetera, kind of big religious studies types of questions. And and so I, I started wandering around. And um, and because of my heritage is half Chinese, um, I had been taking a lot of Chinese uh, courses and just kind of fell into a class with um, on intellectual history. Um, and as an undergrad, I mean, who knows what intellectual history is? Nobody, nobody knows that. Um, but it just so happened that because it was a course uh, by taught by Professor Willard Peterson, um, and it was a course on early China, um, the way he taught it was it was it was almost like doing philosophy at the time. Um, it was like the alternative to philosophy for me, and um, and I just discovered that these were. These were texts and thinkers from, you know, even though they were from a totally, you know, remote period of time and a, and, and a distant culture, um, so to speak, um, they were just almost just speaking right to me. And I just was totally, totally overwhelmed by the amazingness of these texts uh, from this period. And so I took all this time to study classical Chinese and blah, 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 and, you know, just really, really um, buff up so that I could, I could study early China. And um, then I, you know, I went away for a while and, um, and, uh, and reapplied to grad schools and Princeton, uh, accepted me again. So I, I did this weird thing of going back to my alma mater, which I actually don't recommend <laughs> for anybody to do. Um, but, um, um, and, and at that point, people, you know, are telling me, oh, no, you don't want to do early China because early China, you'll just never get a job. And, <laughs> you know, like all of us are told that. Uh, oh, 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 were you told that too? Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. I always assume that people who do later periods just, you know, uh, somehow uh, people think it's okay, right? You know, you're just, they don't worry as much about you if you're closer to the modern period. But, but you know, everybody's worried and just like, oh, no, you really don't want to do this, you know? And, and 
And, um, but I was like, you know, if I really wanted to not, I mean, this was really what makes me happy. <laughs> and these texts are so marvelous and I haven't, I haven't yet explored them in, in great detail. And, you know, why would I, I even spend this much time to be a grad student and suffer, you know, be, live under the federal poverty line. And, you know, when, when I could go and get a job and, and actually be making money or something. And so this is really what I want to do. So I've got to give it a shot. And so, you know, so I did and, and people were right. It was, it was a very difficult field uh, to be in. Um, and it's getting better. Fortunately, I think, um, uh, as we grow and we, we get more people in it. Um, but, um, but that's, that's kind of the whole, you know, the whole genesis of, of getting into this topic is, um, and not just music, but just, I mean, I really just feel like early China, um, you know, regardless of the academic field, it, it's, it's a period in history that is so phenomenal. I mean, it's almost, I, I, I feel like it's comparable to, you know, one of these just great moments of change, you know, when everything seems to be coming together at once, like even the modern period right now, um, you know, this digital revolution, everything is just, it, it's just things are, you never know where it's going to go. Right. And so I felt that with this, this early period as well. And perhaps because of that resonance, I, I was drawn to it. Ooh, resonance. So I'm going to ask uh-huh. about <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get to resonance actually in a little bit. But So Erica, you've done a lot of work on a lot of different aspects of early Chinese history, early Chinese cosmology. What brought you to this particular topic, a study, and, and this particular book? So on a study of music and its relationships to um, cosmology, to politics, to medicine, and to many other aspects of uh, sort of multiple and individual selves um, that will come to in early China. Right. I think I think one of the main questions for me um, as uh, a grad student, as an early uh, young scholar of early China, was was really what kind of made these thinkers tick. And to me, um, so my first book was on um, human agency in early China and kind of the self and and um, uh, ideals for how the self should act in society. And um, and in many ways, this book, I think, is just really an extension of that because, you know, what what I thought uh, really made these thinkers tick was was this question of how should we act? How should and what motivates our actions and what should motivate our actions? Um, you know, is there some source of authority on which we should be um, kind of, you know, informing our actions or, or being guided even um, or, or being f- compelled uh, to act? And and so, you know, this issue of agency was to me just uh, so central in, in the early tradition and, and throughout all the texts. Um, and I, and music to me is just one small aspect of that. It was one, one way that writers, you know, especially apologists of music, people who were arguing in favor of why music should be continued as a cultural practice. Um, you know, that music was one way that, that we should be basing our actions and, and our, our, 
our kind of cultivation as human beings on. And so this was more like a little outcropping of a much larger interest in those kinds of issues. And, um, it almost kind of capped <laughs> my interest in that, and I've since moved on to other things. But, um, but, but it—it's almost like an addendum, in a sense, to the first book. Um, it's actually really interesting that you're bringing up agency um, as something that you're fundamentally interested in, because, and we'll get to this later on as we move through um, the chapters and really get into the meat of the book. But it really seems like one of the fundamental things that you're trying to do in the book, or at least from the perspective of this reader, um, is to engage that idea of agency and causality in particular in the way we understand music and its place in um, relation to the cosmos in the discourse of early China. So it, it really seems like agency, not just of humans, but of music itself, seems to um, be also a concern that's central in this book. So, okay. That's right. And I, in that way, I think it really is just an extension of, um, I mean, I don't want to talk down the book or anything, but I do think it is an extension of, of this kind of larger, larger issue. So the book, so the book itself, let's, let's get into it. Let's really get into this. Okay. <laughs> so, so the book shows how music took on a central position in early Chinese thought as it became increasingly intertwined with concepts, as you, as you uh, mentioned early in the book, of a harmonious and a resonant cosmos. So let's perhaps start by looking at these two notions in turn as a way to, to open up into the larger concerns of the book. One of the major kinds of work that the book does is to consider the centrality of the notion of harmony to many aspects of early Chinese thought. So the book shows how this concept of harmony was central to integrating what we might otherwise think of as disparate or separate areas, music, the body, the cosmos, medicine, into a system that had ramifications for not just the state and politics, but also for individual ethics and for health. So can you talk a little bit about this notion of harmony? Because this is, as you mentioned in the prologue, a concept that um, has taken on quite an a, a extreme importance in discourses from contemporary and modern China. Um, what interested you about harmony in the context of early China? And how did this become such a focus of what you are doing in the book? That's a great question. And um in many ways, I think um, this concept of harmony is um, is so central to, I mean, I wish there were kind of like a book that actually looked at the whole history of discussions of harmony in China and, um, and how it's been used, you know, politically, rhetorically, for all sorts of different kinds of uh, purposes, um, you know, ethnically, too, to kind of identify, you know, this kind of unified whole that was that that's so difficult to, you know, to it's difficult to think about what China is unless you can have some kind of overarching, um, you know, big type of 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 unifying concept. And I think harmony does that for China um, in in a way that we're, it hasn't been made explicit in the literature yet. And so I think this was, you know, when I brought in harmony, it was, I, I felt like I was just touching upon some, some really, really huge beast um, that really should, should be just, you know, explored in a lot more detail. Um, but the way I look at it is that, um, um, it, harmony is not just something 
they make these early authors make claims about harmony as intrinsic uh, to the cosmos, and that that didn't always exist. And that's what I wanted to show in, in the early part of the book is that you know actually har- there's an evolution of concepts um, on harmony as well. And in early periods, it was it was very much a kind of political state related concept, and that. Um, you know, only later when when you really bring in um, a certain type of cosmological outlook into into uh, the literary realm of of, of China, the the, writ- the realm that's being written about, um, that do you get this connection to the cosmos? That harmony and cosmos are kind of um, not parallel, but basically, you know, harmony is intrinsic uh, to the cosmos. And so, so I wanted to kind of draw out a kind of uh, historical uh, trajectory and, and, you know, and show that there were differences in this conception of harmony. Um, and, and, and then ultimately to show that basically this can be used um, by um, imperial regimes or any kind of state uh, regime uh, for certain purposes. And that music, because of its intimate relationship to, uh, to harmony, um, serves as a kind of ideal window into um, making these kinds of uh, strong imperial claims about statehood and the unification of the state and, and you know, and state order and, and all of those kinds of good things that states want to do when they're centralizing and things like that. Wonderful. Now, can you say a little bit about resonance, which is another term that really threads through the whole of the argument and the whole of the book here and and seems at the same time um, to, you know, perhaps to someone who hadn't or to a listener who hasn't read the book yet, the idea of resonance both um, sounds to us, right, like something that has to do very much with music, but also very much with other kinds of social and cultural things. So can you talk about resonance for you and um, in the way it shapes the argument you're making here? Right. That's a great question. And actually, if I were to do this book again, I I would probably try to highlight the relationship between the kind of actual um, concept of harmony in China, the word he. And then, you know, resonance is more of a hermeneutical kind of uh, concept that we as scholars apply to a certain moment in early Chinese history when when cosmologies of a certain sort, and, and I call them cosmologies of, of resonance. Um, and that's a take on or take off of um, this typical way of talking about correlative cosmologies, um, which is this word that's bandied around in, in our field um, and talked about a lot. And, and, and it's not very well kind of Understood. It's 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 up for a lot of you know, debate um, as to what it is, and I, I really feel like um, what's at stake here is that we've got all of a sudden in early China um, this this move to really see the world in very very cosmic terms, um, and that every single thinker is presenting. Um, different kinds of cosmologies. Um, and, and so it's, it's very diverse and it's very complicated. And so just to call the whole thing cosmo- correlative cosmologies, um, sometimes uh, kind of, you know, it, 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 it puts a blanket over things that I think, you know, it, it, it hides the diversity there. Um, but, but cosmologies of resonance, in a sense, to me, it, it is also a blanket term. I, you know, I admit that. But what it does is it, it gets at the fundamental, to me, what, um, what is fundamentally 
hap- and changing and happening in, in society is that they're all of a sudden um, starting to think about disparate objects having a kind of innate, inherent resonance, almost like a mystical type of resonance. So, you know, one stone over there that has a certain color, you know, yellow, you know, somehow uh, because of this way of thinking has a kind of mystical resonance with, you know, um, my chariot that I'm driving or something like that. You know, so two independent, very independent objects um, uh, being drawn together in this cosmological way um, through this concept of resonance. And what's interesting is they don't have an explicit notion of resonance. There's not a term that they, you know, they refer to, um, but it, that, but to me, that's what's the the kind of the connection that's that's apparent is is one of resonance, and so I think it's very uh, applicable to talk about resonance, um, at least from the third century BC um, on. Uh, that this is a really important uh, kind of way that people were thinking back then. Great. Thank you, Erica. So as we move forward um, into uh, sort of a deeper or more deeply into the book, two central questions motivate the discussions that we're going to be seeing. And you lay out these questions early in the book. First, why should music have taken on a privileged relationship to the cosmos when it did? And these questions of why and causality and um, agency, again, are are going to be ones that we're going to um, come back to later on. And also, how um, did the discourses on music and views of its effects on humans change as music takes on this um, very different uh, privileged status in relation to how um, people are understanding and writing about uh, the relationship between humans and the cosmos? So for your purposes and to make sure that um, listeners kind of have a clear sense of um, what this is as we move forward, what constitutes music in early China? Can you talk a little bit about that category so that we can understand um, what comes next in the book? Sure. Um, Music is, and and the the concept that I follow throughout the book, or at least try to um, for most of it, is yue. Um, so yue as it, or luck in, in ancient Chinese, however it was pronounced. And um, um, it, it's actually more than just um, kind of instrumental singing um, notes and tones and rhythms. Um, even though that to me and, and what I argue in the book is that that's really what uh, writers who write about music focus on. Uh, but for them, nonetheless, the, the the term is much more expansive and it includes kinds of um, entertainment and, and all of the kind of costume uh, costume costumes and fanfare that would have gone along with a musical entertainment, so to speak at court or, um, well, those are the ones that we think of or the ones at court or for ritual purpose, uh, you know, state ceremony purposes or things like that. Um, and the extent to which music um, in the private sphere, like, you know, just playing a, a, the chin, uh, the lute or the zither um, and the se or, or these kinds of these instruments that become more personalized and, you know, associated. That's also considered to be yue, but, um, yeah, with maybe less of the, the fanfare. So so even the, the term yue is kind of, you know, has multiple meanings, but it, it really does have a more expansive meaning than what it what it means in, in, in English, I think. 
And as we get into the book, too, I think one of the things that you show really beautifully in the book is how um, what we think of when we think about music as a category in early China also includes discourses about sound um, and other, other forms of sonic um, experience, sonic communication, and sonic knowledge. Um, so I think it's it's actually a really rich category that you're giving us here, which is interesting in so many different ways. And so let's let's start getting toward that. Um, okay. So the book is separated into two parts, and let's start with uh, by looking for a bit at the first part. Part one focuses on music in the state, and it looks in particular at music as an expression of and also a means of creating, and then that's sort of an interesting part of the argument, state order, including um, an attention to music as a civilizing influence on state and society. It also shows how the relationship between music and the state changed as music becomes increasingly identified with uh, kind of harmonious patterns of the cosmos, as I think you put it here. So it focuses on three political and religious applications of music and sound, and let's kind of look at them in turn. So the first... um, the first uh, kind of case that you give us is the importance of music in state order and for cosmic rulership. So to set the stage for this, can you talk about some of the ways that music was important to state rituals in early China um, to, so that we kind of have an understanding of, of what we're talking about when we look at the ways that this changes later on? Sure. Um, so music was um, considered to be one of the most important aspects of of any kind of uh, gentlemanly cultivation, but but it, and, and it always had a role um, in the state because it was so closely related to ritual. In fact, it was actually um, part of ritual or considered to be part of ritual, and 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 we all know how closely linked the Zhou state was to its ritual order. Um, and, you know, that that was kind of the, the backbone, the fabric that um, that helped uh, somehow, um, you know, give the state prestige and um, help unify it, etc. Um, so so music in in terms of this large scale type of music um, uh, was always valued. And, and in particular, there was a set, you know, almost I, I hate to use the word canon until Probably a little later in the in the in the tradition, so later in the Warring States or so. Um, but but I do think it in some sense in the Zhou already um, you can refer to the odes um, as a kind of musical canon uh, even before it became a literary canon, really, um, because the literature um, was kind of it was part and parcel of the music. Uh, but, uh, you know, the actual study of the literature uh, was extracted out of, of the, um, the kind of original musical contexts. Um, and so um, the odes were, were considered to be just almost like the, the glue and the, the lubrication of, uh, of these states that, that, were, that were interacting with each other. And so diplomats who would go to other states would um, use the odes and have different, you know, not, not only would they use them verbally, um, you know, to speak to, <laughs> to each other um, and, and convey meaning, but they would also have um, 
these musical performances be be played um, as ways of uh, receiving envoys and and um, hosting guests and um, also having music at very large state uh, ceremonies for you know morning ceremonies or 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 just whatever the state needed to do. There was always uh, you know some special kind of music that would have been played uh, for the occasion. So it was it was it was always really important. But that kind of music was really formal and. And, um, and it, very expensive too. It, it involved these massive <laughs> um, uh, kinds of uh, bronze bells. Uh, so, so from the get-go, um, in at least at least east, from the Eastern Zhou on, we've got you know massive bronze bells, <laughs> bell sets um, being cast um, and and sent around as gifts and things like that to different states, uh, kings of states, and or. I guess at the time, dukes of states. And um, so you've got the prestige aspect involved uh, with music too, and also just owning, you know, a kind of bell set like that was a huge ordeal. And you've got, you know, it's a, the function of music uh, being being very important for just, this, you know, carrying out these rituals. So I think that's about that's about it for the background of, of big state state kind of music. Yeah. Thank you. Now, you're showing here in this early part of the book that as of or sometime by the 4th century BCE, cosmology kinds of changed. And and what emerges is a new, more systematic cosmology where the world was full of qi and, and various relationships um, that uh, that were based on um, relationships with this kind of cosmic qi. Now, mm-hmm. you're showing changes here in the way music is understood as kind of a mediator between um, this, the ruler's body or how music enables rather the ruler's body to mediate between the state and the cosmos uh, in the context of this new cosmological way of understanding the universe. And one of the things you're doing in the course of showing the importance of music in this, in the context of this changing cosmology is something that I alluded to earlier, but that I'd like to ask you about um, right now as a way to kind of make this, um, or to turn our attention directly to this for a few moments. You're showing here that music was not just reflective of the health of the state, but there was actually a causal relationship between music and state health. And you note here that this is actually an insight that's quite a bit different from the way some others have approached this topic and this set of issues in the context of early China. It wasn't just an indicator, it was an agent. So can you talk a little bit about that and um, the importance of that to what you're arguing here? Sure. Um, Well, just to step back a few few steps, uh, I wanted to say that um, the reason that um, this cosmology, what, what intrigued me about um, this project in the beginning and, and, and actually led me to, to embark on it is, is that I started noticing when I was reading um, these texts on music that some, there were actually some authors who would claim that music was just like the, uh, um, the single most best way to kind of be in contact with the cosmos. I um, mean, you know, ab- above and beyond ritual, which is a huge statement, you know, for, for the period, you know, considering how important ritual was. Um, and, 
And all of a sudden I started thinking, wait a minute, you know, everybody's kind of dissed music because it's, it's, um, you know, it's the lost classic. It's, 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 it's not even, you know, been transmitted as a classic or, or maybe it's been folded into the, the right, the book of the rights or something like that. And, and, and also people don't write on music that much just because, well, I mean, there's this sense that, yeah, we just want to hear music, which is, which I totally agree. You know, you know, if you have the choice, listen to music instead of read a book about music. Um, but, um, um, but the sense of, of the cosmos is being the most important, um, uh, music is being the most important um, kind of entryway into the cosmos or actually a part of the cosmos um, really intrigued me because it resonated with, um, you know, kind of the ancient Greek ideas of the, you know, the, the harmony or the music of the spheres, the, the Pythagorean um, concept that, you know, the planetary bodies actually moved according to, um, mathematical patterns, mathematical ha- ratios, you know, of, of, of harmony, of music. Um, and so that music was not just um, related to the, the, the cosmos. It was a part of the cosmos. It was the operative function of the cosmos. Um, and so uh, to get back to your question, it's, it was, it was very apparent from a lot of these texts to me when I read it that um, people were reading it wrong. They were just like, oh, yeah, we just want, you know, the humans through music to fit into the cosmos. But um, um, to me, their claims are very explicit. And um, and what I wanted to draw out was that actually what they're saying is that, no, we want sages and we want people to cultivate themselves through music so that it actually um, – uh, that they actually extend the cosmos there. They become a part of cosmic processing, so to speak, and a pro- cosmic unfolding um, so that you really get, no, we're not just humans who are fitting into the cosmos and, and mimicking the cosmos. We are actually becoming the cosmos. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, yeah. Another one of the things, sort of as we move from this into um, the next chapter of the book, we see music promoted as a tool for cultural unification, for cultural imperialism, and as a general civilizing force. So let's talk a little bit, um, if you don't mind, about some of these issues, because this is a really interesting part of the book where you are, in some ways, integrating this study into a larger history of empire and imperialism in a really interesting way, and also into a larger history of um, history of psychology or ways of thinking about the connections between notions of psychology and history also in really interesting ways. So there's some interesting conceptual moves that are happening in this chapter. Now you notice here, or you note here that music is promoted as a tool of cultural unification. And you, you indicate in the book, some of the reasons why unification in this period was so important. But what I want to talk, um, what I want to ask you about specifically is sort of in this section, in discussing the importance of unification and cultural unification, you're invoking a connection between music and psychology. So let's talk about that a little bit. Can you talk here about um, your like, uh, what it means to describe um, music in terms of psychology, specifically in early China, what it means to talk about psychology of early China, and specifically what kind of work does the notion of mass psychology do for you in the context of your argument about uh, music being a tool of cultural unification? 
Oh, that's really interesting. Um, it, it's interesting that you bring in the psychology part now because I, I tended in my work to link it more to uh, the, the so-called development of psychology to certain texts um, in chapter four that um, that really just start um, in, a, in this really interesting way talking about um, you know, okay, music is important, and why is it important? Well, let me sh- let me elaborate on all the different aspects of our emotional makeup and how we respond to a- external uh, phenomena, and show you why music is important is like basic and foundational in in that in that sense. Um, and so, to me, that was like that very important. I mean, you don't see that in earlier texts. You certainly don't see it in the Moists, who who really kind of condemn music, and and even in the Analects. Um, even though the, the text of the Analects may, might be pretty late, um, but um, you know the the language is very it's it's very simple. The the focus on music is 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 much more. Um, uh, not, you know, related to the cosmos at all and, um, or even psychology. Um, and so, so to see this in these kinds of this, this emphasis on, you know, the makeup of, of our, our psyche, uh, of the way we think our will in relationship to our, our emotions, um, to see that is really phenomenal in, in this, especially a third century text. And I don't want to jump too too far ahead um and so that's why that's what got me onto this track of okay something's happening with psychology here that that you know we start to see kind of um rudimentary uh forms of of elaborations on on what makes up the human being and our emotions and wills and heart heart minds and all of that cognition um and at the same time um and, and that I, I think I brought over into that third cha- or was it the second chapter? Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's the second chapter with Sh- where I, where Schrinze starts making some really interesting comments on, you know, how music affects our 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 chi and our, our bodies, and ultimately he's because he's so he's making this very strong argument for um, a kind of strong centralized state um i think ultimately he he makes that really incredible step of saying um yeah well it you know it it actually makes us all think very sim- in similar ways <laughs> um, it, you know it's almost like this um you know it's saying that music is a kind of tool for propaganda or something like that and so i thought that was a really interesting and hilarious claim and i had to point it out so um that I think that's the extent to which I got into mass psychology. And, and it's really only because of, I, I really only saw it in Shinza. I don't know exactly. I didn't do a lot of research into all these other um, uh, later, uh, you know, third century texts that might also have done that. But, um, but I, I, I don't think it's that common. Yeah. <laughs> well, sure, well, since we're there anyway, let's, um, I think, you know, we're in charge, so we can move to chapter four if we want to. So let's, since we're talking about psychology, and you just mentioned that your interest is um, really emerged more centrally for you in psychology, in the work that's going on in the fourth chapter, let's sort of move for a moment. So now we're in the first part of the book where we're looking at groups of individuals and sort of mm-hmm. music and groups of people. What the second part of the book does is it moves to 
Individ the individual. Okay, so the, we're changing scale, but we're also looking at the ways that very similar kinds of phenomena that are being discussed in the first part of the book in the context of groups and the context of multiples are being like focused in in this second part of the book on the scale of the individual person, the individual sage, the body right. in terms of its health, its moral, its spiritual, its medical aspects. And one of the ways that this happens, again, as a kind of parallel to what we just talked about in terms of psychology of masses, is the psychology of the individual. And so since you invoked it, um, let's, let's move to that right now and we'll just find our way back to the the masses maybe if we want a little bit later sure can, can you talk a little bit about what's going on um here in terms of uh music being discussed with psychology and the psychology of the emotions in particular how does music become related to um notions of the emotions and can you talk about that as it informs your your argument right um this to me was was kind of the the motivation for writing this book because I or it wasn't the book I, it was my motivation for writing a very um, long uh, article that ended up being a part of this book um, and it started because I was interested in this very intriguing um, what we call uh, what Michael Pewitt has has called a sexy text in in ancient China um, and and it's an excavated text uh, called the Xing Ming Chu uh, so Xing is is uh, so I guess that translates into um, human nature comes from uh, kind of heavenly command. Um, and it, that doesn't sound like such a sexy title, but it, it is really, um, it's, it's a really important find um, in, in, that belongs to this cache of excavated texts called the Guodian manuscripts or bamboo strips. And um, this one in particular, uh, you know, a lot of philosophers and, and people just gravitated towards because it was, um, it, it just had this really, really intriguing take on human nature and the relationship to morality and, and, and music in particular was highlighted as, as its central theme. Um, and, and not just music, but also music's relationship to one, the emotions, um, and through the emotions to morality. Um, so this kind of, um, Confucian or Ruist, uh, type of, of emphasis. Um, and so, it was really that text that, um, and, and the analysis and the in-depth analysis of that text that got me into this idea that, wow, you know, what's happening here is, is really interesting. And, and, and I looked at other kinds of texts that I thought were from the period. Of course, it's very hard to date these because I think the Gordian manuscripts are kind of plus or minus 100 years uh, surrounding 300 BC. So, you know, anywhere from 200 BC or 400 BC to 200 BC. So we don't really know exactly when they were um, written. And um, just because they're in a tomb doesn't mean that they were written right around then. They could have been, you know, around for a long, a lot longer than that as well. Um, so I tried to look at other texts uh, from the period and it did seem that there was um you know, just an opening up of of discussions about uh, human emotions in general, um, and and not just related to music, um, but you know, in this book, obviously, I, I wanted to bring in that uh, that aspect of it, uh, and that they're really exploring um, uh, what this cluster of of concepts uh, 
means of, uh, you know, the cluster of concepts being human nature, the will, the, uh, the, 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 you know, with the, the kind of, um, heart mind <laughs> concept, uh, with the will, the heart mind and all of the, you know, kind of sets of emotions that go along uh, with that and how they all relate to each other. And so I just found, um, you know, that relationship really, really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, 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 that's great. And in fact, if you don't mind me kind of um, asking you a little bit more about this, because this is a really fascinating part of the book. What we're seeing here is something that comes up, um, perhaps to kind of look back into something that comes up in the first part of the book, but then resurfaces here in the second part of the book that we're focusing on now. You're um, in ch- starting in chapter three, but really this resurfaces here where we are in chapter four. You're moving us from um, this kind of more limited, perhaps, concept of music to a larger concept of sound and the importance of sound. You show earlier in the book how sound um, not just becomes increasingly associated with the authentic emotion or inner reality of the individual, which is something that we see again coming up here, um, but also that sound, this has something to do with the relationship between sound and wind. And here also we have sound and its relationship um, with ideas of virtue or the and waves and wind. So these are two, um, they're two really interesting things, at least for me as a totally idiosyncratic reader that come out of this association that we see developed in the third and fourth chapter. One um, is the importance of the, um, this idea of access to inner or authentic reality um, and authentic emotions through music and sound. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems, again, to be one of many places in this study that really reaches out to um, re- relevance and resonance with a much broader set of fields and issues that this contributes to potentially. So specifically in this book, can you talk about this idea of inner reality and authentic emotion as it um, plays a part in your argument here? Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up because it really it it really is uh, one of the core um, ideas that I, I play with uh, throughout in different chapters and in different ways. Um, and in chapter four, in particular, with that excavated text, um, that text in particular talks about sound as the uh, kind of access point, the access, the 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 medium through which we are our emotions, our feeling and getting in touch with another person's sound, so to speak, um, and feeling it's almost as though you could transport, you know, the moral virtue of a sagely uh, person who had composed this music to the listener through this kind of, of sound or, or, or just the moral virtue of the performer as well. Um, so there is the sense of sound being the medium of uh, like waves and wind, right? This this almost this physical thing that goes from uh, from human being to human being, um, and and really gets you in touch with in this what I what I call an unmediated fashion. I mean, even though I, I just called it a medium, right? <laughs> but but because sound has this, and and sound is different from wind because. Um, it's still kind of an invisible, right? I don't think they were necessarily thinking of it in terms of waves or anything. It's, it's very unclear how exactly they, they thought of sound. And I think, you know, by later periods, there are definitely discussions of that. Like, you know, are emotions even carried in 
sound, um, <laughs> you know, or are they intrinsic to sound or is it something separate? And those are very interesting kinds of concepts from a kind of historic history of science, right? Perspective. Oh, yeah. um, but, but at this early stage, it, there's definitely this sense that, um, you know, with, with resonance, uh, that sound is the, is the conveyor of this, of this resonance in some instances, not always in some instances, resonance just happens, you know, it kind of independently. Uh, but, but in a lot of, uh, texts sound, uh, you know, kind of fulfills that function. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of forgetting the first part of your question, which was... No, this is actually, this is great. So uh, the first part of my question was, um, well, you're actually getting at the second part of my question already. So so we just reverse them. And the second part of my question was going to be um, really what you just talked about, the importance of this in a larger history of what we might consider to be materiality. Mm-hmm. Right. I think this, right. Was, this was one of the really exciting parts of this book for me. And, and I wasn't expecting this to come out of this particular study. It, it, it's, um, <laughs> no, no, not, not. <laughs> it's true. This, I mean, who's going to go read a music book for. <laughs> right, well, I mean, exactly. You see, this is a book on music. I didn't, I didn't realize. And I was really um, kind of wonderfully surprised to find this, this. There's a lot of material in here, I think, for, li- for readers and listeners to think further about how to situate music within a larger history of materiality and notions of materiality in China. So you actually just, um, I think, spoke to that really nicely. I think the um, the first part of my question was about just the notion of authenticity. Oh, yes. That, that's right, right, right. That is one of my favorite little things with, and I, I always go back to uh, the quote uh, or this, this phrase, the bosom buddies, the dream um, uh, uh, <laughs> that I love, you know, and it's just this, um, it's this notion that um, somehow, um, and, and this is common. And I mean, it became, it, it was picked up, for, you know, from early times uh, to become this, this, way of, of referencing, you know, your bosom buddy, somebody who just knows you because they just are so close and they just, they just get you right. They, you don't need to speak. Right. Um, there's, um, in China and especially in this early period when names, uh, Ming and, um, language was being kind of, uh, put through this skeptical, um, you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, lens of, of, of inquiry, like, you know, how, how can we trust, you know, language, all of a sudden music is starting to emerge as, um, the kind of the winner of the day, you know, the one that comes through to actually give you access to truth, to cosmic truth in particular, when you get these uh, cosmologies of resonance really coming into the into the literary record. And, um, and that music somehow um, is, you know, you don't need to mediate music and in, in, in it's, it's, it, it, there's this natural resonance. And so, um, you just kind of naturally can imbibe and in, um, kind of, um, soak in, uh, so to speak, um, the, the feelings and the morality of another, of another person. And so that's what I meant by, uh, the authentic kind of communication that, that music, um, was thought to allow. Um, and you see that throughout, I mean, especially with with this notion of of cosmos and this connection between the cosmos and music, when that comes about after that, you know, music is pretty much just golden, like, you know, in terms of it's, you know, it's. 
Yeah, it's 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 the shit. It's the it's the way that you get to another person. <laughs> it's the way that you get to truth, right? Um, and that's really that's you know I, I guess we all think that in some ways because music is so is so important to us as human beings and also as you know animals. I mean, even animals love music, and um, it is just seeing it expressed in these different ways in in early China that I thought was really interesting. And you've actually just brought up um, a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about as we move into the um, the final two body chapters of the book. So in chapter five, you're talking about the um, sort of the emergence of something you just kind of alluded to, which is a more integrated triangular, as you put it in the book, connection between music, the cosmos, and the psyche. Okay, so we see really this kind of... Um, blossoming of a, a much more integrated connection between these things um, than we saw in earlier texts. Now you're showing here that as a result of this new triangular connection, a new notion of cosmic attunement as a goal of sagely cultivation also emerged. And so we see here um, this idea that the sage or the sage ruler could use music to attune himself to the natural rhythms and cycles of his environment. It's a really fascinating chapter. Okay, so this is all going on, so I mentioned this for listeners. Now, what I wanted to ask you about in particular is something about this chapter that really fascinated me, and that really speaks to a connection between music and language that you just alluded to um, just a little bit earlier. Part of this chapter that's so fascinating, and one of the many points in this book that, again, really reaches out and speaks to larger discourses on not just the history of China, but the history of articulation, the history of sound, the history of knowledge as it incorporates all of these things, has to do with uh, the importance of names and naming. Mm-hmm. So you can see sort of perhaps where I'm going with this and, and why I'm, I'm coming here from um, your previous uh, invocation of the connection between music and language. One of the really interesting things that you're doing in this chapter is to refocus the reader's assumptions or understandings of Ming, of naming and names in this context, to something that's more closely integrated with a history of sound and meaning. So can you talk a little bit um, about that? First of all, am I getting that? <laughs> am I totally misreading that? Um, and no, I, I think you're right. And I don't think many people who have read, I don't know if many people read the book, first of all, but I don't think many people who have read the book actually understand that aspect. And I, and I'm really, I'm really impressed. Um, but, but one thing is that, um, uh, you know, so there is this, this problem going on with, or the problem problematization of, of names and, and language. Right. And, and so this chapter five, I think is, um, my way of kind of getting at an alternate. So, uh, in in like chapter four, a lot of those discourses or most of those were kind of Confucian discourses, really, you know, and they, they fit into this whole trajectory of music and the emotions and then its connection and, and its connection to the cosmos, etc. and the psyche. And that's all great. And, and they're really focusing on, you know, how how good music is for us, you know, because they're kind of musical apologetics. They really want to, you know, push this agenda as to why music is so important. But then the so-called Taoists, or, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, use that term in, in this crude way, but it, it does help us kind of conceptualize like this alternative of uh, this alternative approach to thinking about music. And, and that's, 
that's really represented in chapter five. I, I don't think that they, uh, they care as much about the music per se. What is so interesting is they're interested in the concept of music as a kind of solution to um, uh, this problem of naming, as, as you put it. And, and that, um, and, and knowledge, especially because it's, it's all about the sage and how the sage can attune himself to this larger cosmos. And, and they use this kind of, um, I mean, a lot of people think it's a metaphor of music and in many senses and in many contexts it is. Uh, but if you look closely at some passages, they go so far as to make really radical claims that, um, that, you know, this is music that is intrinsic to the cosmos and that, you know, the sage is really just uh, attuning himself to this, the cosmos, which is basically music. Um, and so, um, so, so the, the emphasis isn't really like performed music, you know, in the ritual setting. It's more like this concept of music that allows the sage to be um perfect in his wisdom and perfect in his knowledge in a sense of truth and authentic and, and cosmic authenticity um, and the operations of, of, you know, the natural spontaneous operations of, of the universe um, rather than um, music as, you know, these kinds of uh, concrete sounds and rhythms and things like that. It's, it's more like natural sounds and natural rhythms. And uh, in that context, you know, music takes on, a very, a kind of really, really huge, large scale, um, uh, conceptual, um, yeah, it's, it's just conceived of in this very, very grand way. Thank you, Erica. Now I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I'm not going to, um, let you go yet. I refuse to let you go. Well, before I ask you about the, the last, um, body chapter, this is, again, um, one of the many ways that this very focused case study is speaking to different disciplines. And here, you're speaking, I think, very meaningfully to the history of health and medicine and bodies in a really interesting way. So um, without you know, asking you to, to um, go into too many questions about this, because, of course, you know, as a historian of medicine, I'd love to know 7,000 things about the fascinating stuff that's going on here, but I'll keep it simple. So in chapter six, you're arguing that music was also a really powerful tool in medical practice and thought. And in some ways, it was actually considered to be something we can think of as a medicine. Mm -hmm. It was considered to have the power to transform bodies according to beliefs about cosmic harmony, resonance, and balance. So this is really a chapter where we're coming um, to a place where we're situating music, not just within the individual and the self, but within really the, the kind of corporeal body and its n notions of normality and abnormality in terms of illness specifically. So how can you talk a little bit about really any aspect of this larger um, phenomenon of the medical or healthful properties of music uh, that you're talking about in this chapter that particularly interest you or fascinate you how was music materially linked to health and can you give us maybe um an example that uh, just of an aspect of this that you're particularly interested in um sure um i, I must qualify my response though um i i feel like of the whole book this this chapter is 
clearly the weakest. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say that, but, but, but it, I really, I wanted to do so maybe it's just cause I wanted to do so much more with it and I didn't have time. And I also was kind of disappointed with what I found um, because there were so many uh, kind of really intriguing comments in the textual record, uh, you know, from the even dating for as early as the Jodra in fourth century or so BCE, you know, that really link um, uh, the ruler's body in particular with um, with medicine and music, and and basically, you know, all of these there are these stories about um, diagnosing um, the ruler because he's you know he's listening either to the wrong kind of music, um, and so his state is going to be doomed. Um, so it's a style of music that's also that's a problem sometimes, but it's also sometimes just this notion of excess um, that you know. Um, and not just excessive music. Um, that was also uh, demonized, uh, such as the music's the, the different kinds of music from the state of Jung or Wei. Unfortunately, we don't know what any of these kinds of music sound sound like anymore. Um, we don't know what ancient music sounds like. It's it's impossible to you know to reconstruct something that you know there was nothing written about or no recordings um, of. But um, but so so the style of music was demonized. And and it was it was said to relate to human bodies because of the excessive quality of either the music itself. So so perhaps there were different modes of. Uh, so in in music, um, you have standard modes, and we all thought that the you know we all think that the ancient Chinese listened to pentatonic the pentatonic kind of mode or, or what we would call a scale. Um, but it it could have been, and, and there were some intriguing references to the fact that these other states that were probably ethnically very diverse, um, you know, so you have to really think of these places as, as kind of outside the, um, you know, the mainstream Joe kinds of, uh, the rituals of the odes, etc., Um, and that, that, you know, they were playing music that was wild, you know, kind of like the rock and roll or the punk or something of, of today. And that those were deemed to be just really detrimental to one's health. And so this connection to, between, you know, styles of music, um, what is it about, uh, and, and also excessive types, excessive instruments, like some instruments were too large. There's this actual passage in the Zodran that talks about the king is listening to these these bells and they're too large and because they're so large you know obviously they're ritually incorrect and so he's going beyond his own his own uh, he, you know his own proper station but but in one sense they're just too large <laughs> and you know the physical nature of these instruments is causing him some you know really really uh, major medical distress and and I thought that was that was a really intriguing um, connection so I, I really knew from very early on that medicine was very important but I just couldn't find enough um, enough of those statements that that really made this link and and i and i looked through some of the medical texts a little bit but i really couldn't find you know when you get into the medical texts themselves they weren't as interested in in music um necessarily and so that was kind of a disappointment i'm I'm not saying it's not there but it i didn't have enough time to kind of really really explore all of the options and and um but uh, but what's intriguing is that it is there in the kind of philosophical discussions of music as, as because of its 
music's relationship to the body, um, it's, you know, medicine is just a natural kind of extension of that, um, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that this, um, this chapter does really, really nicely is to do what, you know, when we're writing a book, especially a book that tries to do, and I think really is very successful in doing what this book does, which is speaking, taking a phenomenon that's absolutely central to so many different areas of the thought, culture, society, and politics of a period, and opening up um, readers' eyes to the many ways in which this, you know, this concept is central. You, we can't, you know, you, often, and you know, I, I sympathize with this. You finish writing the book, and then you feel like, well, I could have written an entire book. On you know any on that particular exactly. topic, exactly. Um, and and of course we can't right. I mean, no individual can do all of that. I think what you do really beautifully in this chapter on music and medicine is to open the eyes of readers. Um, even though I know none of us ever feels right, like like we've done everything, present everything there is to say about. But I think there are seeds here for many future books on the relationship between bodily health, um, notions of normality and abnormality, illness, excess, moderation, as they relate music to medicine in ways that readers may not have been, and even historians of medicine may not have been aware of before. And so in that way, I think it's really successful. So, Oh, thank you, Carla. I just want to add that when I was doing uh, readings for that particular aspect of the book, I did come across a lot of um, comments in other cultures, you know, more contemporary stuff, you know, from the 1890s in America or, or 20th century stuff that, you know, this, this connection between music and medicine is actually really, really extensive throughout um, almost all cultures. And so, you know, I, I, I was I was intrigued by that that connection as well. So, so some listener out there should um, host a workshop on this theme and invite <laughs> us, and we will right. be very <laughs> eager participants in this workshop. That sounds fantastic. Great, so, Erica, um, We've taken up a lot of your time, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Now, there's of thank course you. a ton of material in the book that we didn't get to. Um, it's it's as I've already mentioned, very very rich and speaks to many different fields. Um, using this focus case study, is there anything in particular that we didn't mention or that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, perhaps especially for readers um, or? for listeners rather who haven't yet become readers. So perhaps for, um, especially for people who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, is there anything that you feel is important that we didn't get to though? Um, That's interesting. In, in chapter three, there is one part uh, that I think, and one point that I think is, is really important, even though it doesn't talk about music on the whole, it talks about sound and its relationship to uh, kind of cosmic uh, standards uh, and uh, standards for the ruler uh, to abide in. And uh, this, this is really intriguing to me because um, it seemed like at this point in time, uh, people were starting to make claims that sound was the uh, uh, was the way that you could kind of standardize your whole empire. And and what I mean, but let me just give you an example. Um, there's this this really intriguing chapter in the Shiji. Um, uh, no, it's actually in the Hanshu, um, uh, not in the Shiji. Um, uh, it's the it's in the calen- the the chapter for pitch pipes and calendars, you know, calendars or something like that. And 
you know, it goes into this, this detailed relationship of, 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 uh, sonic harmonies, um, you know, mathematical relations even, uh, to, uh, as a standard for, uh, for order in the cosmos and in, in, in society as well. Um, and so this links to the, you know, taking, and all of a sudden they, they start talking about pitch pipes and this is really, really complicated stuff. And it took me a while to, to kind of sift through this cause it got really technical, um, but the interesting point is that, um, you know, a certain pitch pipe called the Huangzhong or the yellow bell was basically taken to be kind of what I call the sweet spot of the cosmos. And it was it was basically like the point at which um, these authors were saying, you know, you can standardize measurements, you can standardize um, uh, everything based on this particular sound, <laughs> which is this wild, wild thing. Um, and, and so for that reason, you get these, these weird um, uh, kind of practices of watching the ethers where they would have like pitch pipes uh, dug into the ground, you know, and this was at court in the Han court, they would put pitch pipes, you know, into the ground in a circular array, um, arrangement. And they would, because they thought that the cosmos, you know, and, and, and these uh, at different cycles, of the of the seasons, you know, the cosmos would speak in a certain way through the winds, um, and 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 through these kinds of sounds of, of the pitch pipe, uh, that they would actually observe dirt uh, that had been moved <laughs> uh, from these from the earth, and and basically you know kind of divine the fortunes of the cosmos on that. And so I think that's that's a really interesting and intriguing use of one aspect of music in relationship to the cosmos. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. And that also sort of gets at really interesting connections that we could draw here between um, the, the history of music and the history of technology, right? And the history of instrumentality and the history of space and so many possibilities to, to look at. Um, thank you so much, Erica. So, so oh, thank you. So now that this book is out and, and congratulations on it, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently getting you excited or inspiring you? Um, well, this book was a strange one. I, I kind of wrote it um, in off periods, you know, just, it was on the back burner for about seven or eight years. And, and, and you just kind of, you know, come to the front for a little while and then go back to the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so intriguingly, it came together in this kind of weird way. It just, um, just happened. And it was very easy compared to my first book, um, which is, it, it just baffles me still to this day that, you know, books can be so different from each other. Um, uh, and, and at the same time, I had started a third project, and so my mind was always uh, kind of kind of divided. Um, and I've been working on that third project for several years now, and it's. I think if there's a theme to all of this, um, it's kind of. Well, I don't know if there's a theme, um, <laughs> but uh, but the but the new project is on. Um, on ethnicity and the frontiers, um, and and so concepts of the self or the uh, self and other, uh, but in particular, it's a different yue that I'm looking at. It's not music yue, but it's the it's the southern yue peoples and their relationships to the more northern folks. Um, so I'm interested in frontier um, kinds of um, interactions, cross-cultural um, interactions, and in particular, um, the relationship between the empire uh, that I start talking about, you know, in, in my uh, earlier works and, um, and, and, 
empire and and kind of colonization of these of these peoples. And so, and that's really interesting because that also plays up some of the themes um, earlier in this book that um, really interestingly. So, right. I think it was because I was starting to think in those terms that I even brought in imperialism and cultural imperialism into this, this second book so that, yeah, it did play in. Well, that's fascinating too. Best of luck with that project. Um, and we'll thank talk you very again. much. We'll talk again. I'm sure when that, I'm up. sure. I hope so. Thank you so much, Erica. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.